there's more carbon in the forest than there is in all the known fossil fuel reserves that we, we have today. So if we don't also focus aggressively on stopping forest loss, we also lose the battle. And forests have a double win in the sense that while they're standing, they, they actually remove uh, carbon from the atmosphere. So forests are almost doubly important in this battle, and that's something that a lot of people miss. In fact, our standing forests absorb about 3 billion tons of carbon, or almost 10 billion tons of carbon dioxide, every year. That means that about a quarter of all industrial emissions get sucked up by trees. Our management of forests, however, is something else. And because we chop so many trees, our management of forests, farms, and fields generates 23% of all the greenhouse gases that we humans pump into the atmosphere every year. As I record this, the Amazon is burning, not as a result of climate change, but as a cause of climate change. You know, all those videos you're seeing of the Amazon on fire, well, that's because farmers are burning the forest to clear land for soy and cattle. And the governments of Norway and Germany recently put their carbon payments to Brazil on hold as a result. Today's show is tragically timely because it's the second of three parts looking at the history of those carbon payments and the mechanisms that make them possible. Man may be unwittingly changing the world's climate through the waste products of his civilization. There's a group of us now who are proposing that the Earth has actually entered a new epoch, and that is the Anthropocene. We know that the enemy is carbon, and we know it's ugly face. We should put a big fat price on it, and of course, add to that, drop the subsidies. Earth. We broke it, we own it. And nothing is as it was. Not the trees, not the seas, not the forests, farms, or fields. And not the global economy that depends on all of these. But we can restore it, make it better, greener, more resilient, more sustainable. But how? Technology? Geoengineering? Are we doomed to live on a bionic planet, or is nature herself the answer? That's the question we address in every episode of Bionic Planet, a podcast of the Anthropocene, the new epoch defined by man's impact on Earth. And today we hear how the Paris Climate Agreement creates, among other things, a framework within which we can flip our management of forest farms and fields from being a net source of greenhouse gases, which it is now, to a net sink, a giant sponge that mops up carbon dioxide by the gigaton. We all learned about photosynthesis in school and how plants breathe in carbon dioxide and breathe out oxygen. You may remember that these plants keep the carbon for themselves. In a sense, trees don't grow out of the ground, they drop down from the sky. They lock carbon in their trunks and they infuse nitrogen into the soil. That's why saving forests is so critical to meeting the climate challenge, and why the Paris Agreement contains provisions for something called Red Plus, which stands for Reducing Emissions from Deforestation and Forest Degradation in Developing Countries, plus a bunch of other things. It's a mouthful of an acronym that serves as an umbrella term for several diverse and often misunderstood interventions which we will be covering in a new series on Ecosystem Marketplace called, appropriately enough, 
Understanding Red Plus. Today's guest, Kevin Conrad, helped make Red Plus a reality while acting as lead negotiator for the country of Papua New Guinea and head of the Coalition for Rainforest Nations. In the first installment of this series, we tracked the history of forest carbon back to the discovery of photosynthesis and up through early pilot projects that used carbon finance to save endangered forests. When we left off, it was the early 2000s, and Kevin was trying to understand this carbon finance stuff. He had just found out that the World Bank was, at the time, the world's leading buyer of carbon offsets. So I did go to the World Bank, and I met with a guy called Ken Newcomb at that time, who was leading their carbon practice. And, and Ken had actually worked in, in Papua New Guinea in the Electricity Commission. So he was familiar with, with, um, with uh, PNG and, and sort of the situation. And we had a, a, a preliminary discussion, and he, he, he's the one who told me, well, Kevin, you know, what you're saying actually makes perfect sense to me. The unfortunate problem is this, is that the UNFCC uh, has intentionally excluded tropical forests from this carbon construct. And I had two immediate questions. One, what is the UNFCC? And two, why would they exclude it? And uh, he explained that, you know, this was the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. They're the ones who were supposed to be regulating uh, the carbon uh, uh, policies globally. And that at one point, Brazil and the EU had blocked tropical forests from being part of the Kyoto Protocol. We'll get to why Brazil and the EU had kept forests out of the Kyoto Protocol in our next episode. But you can also check out a series that I'm rolling out on Ecosystem Marketplace called Forests, Farms, and the Global Carbon Sink, which is admittedly a work in progress. Again, it's called Forests, Farms, and the Global Carbon Sink, and I'll provide a link to it in today's show notes. The series looks at the entire history of natural climate solutions within the Paris Agreement. And that history is important because we are drifting into silly territory here, replaying old debates that were resolved more than a decade or more ago, and we simply cannot afford to waste our time doing that now. That's one reason I'm digging back into all of this ancient history. And if you like the show, I encourage you to help me generate more shows by becoming a patron at bionic-planet.com or at patreon.com forward slash bionicplanet. There you can support me for as little as $1 per episode and with a monthly cap. The addresses again are bionic-planet.com and patreon.com forward slash bionicplanet. Of course, you can also help just by accessing me through the right podcatcher. Namely, access me through the Radio Public app. That's Radio Public like public radio, but backwards. They automatically pay me a few cents for every listener who hears the show to the end, and that adds up. Finally, you can help just by giving me a five-star review on whichever podcatcher you hear me through. That helps, because the more stars I get, the more ears I get. And the more ears I get, the more minds I can reach. And we have to reach hundreds of millions of minds if we're to meet this challenge. We can do it if we all work together. Now picking up where we left off, Ken Newcomb of the World Bank had just told Kevin Conrad that the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, or UNFCCC, had left tropical forests out of the Kyoto Protocol, which meant that Papua New Guinea couldn't get credit for saving its forests. And he told me, he said, if you want to change this, don't come to the World Bank. You've got to go to the UNFCC and change it. 
and and I was like, okay, fine, sure. Uh, you know, wh- uh, who do I call? Gotcha. Okay. <laughs> and at this point, you know, maybe before we move on, maybe you could talk just a little bit about the uh, tier one. Sure. Sure. What 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 the IBCC did was the best job that they could do by remote. So they developed tier one estimates for how much carbon is associated with either activities or assets such as forests or, you know, they call them sinks. Sinks means where does, where does carbon get absorbed? And so they used the best science and they came up with default values based on differing forest types. Now that's called tier one. Tier two is when a country goes in and actually gets country specific data for their forest type. So what the IPCC and UNFCC allow you to do to say, well, okay, you can begin with very conservative tier one estimates, but the idea is that over time you'll get more and more accurate country specific data. And based on that, your error bars will go down and you'll be much better in reporting. So as this relates to red, if you use tier one values, you're going to get less money for your reductions because you're, you're very conservative and the amount of carbon that is estimated is low. But if you improve your data, then your incentive increases because you're more accurate and in that case, your carbon values increase. And so, so the incentive is right in the sense that if, if you don't have the capacity and you're and you're 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 very sort of risky in your estimates. Um, you need to go slowly, and as you be as you become better and better, you can go faster. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. And eventually, you get to this uh, the, the top tier, which is where you're going out and you're doing these random samples of trees, and you can say with ninety five percent certainty how much carbon is in. Well, well, tier three actually that's actually part of tier two. Tier three is when when a country is using all their national data, meaning that they're not relying on defaults anymore. So everything is the most accurate because every source and every sink is using country-specific peer-reviewed estimates. Now, there's no country in the world right now that's tier three. Um, Everyone is somewhere in a gradient between tier one and a mix of estimates and a mix of country specific in tier two but tier three is the ultimate objective gotcha okay and now going back to where you were now you're in this you you speak with ken newcomb and he tells you you have to go and change change the unf triple c which is not it sounds the way you describe it it sounds like a, a little entity you can go knock on the door and say hey guys can you fix this but well, well I, that's as much as i knew right right so that's your perception <laughs> and how did you go about learning what the unf triple c really is what uh, can you explain? well that then became my thesis uh in grad school so i was at columbia university in london business school and i had to write a thesis and this was this was all happening sort of before grad school a lot of this and i ended up in new york and then i decided look this is a really interesting issue I've got to go out and begin doing research on this and let me turn it into a thesis. So part of that due diligence then led me to the Union of Concerned Scientists. There was Peter Fromhoff, who was a, a scientist who was focusing on these things. I met with Environmental Defense and Annie Petsong. I flew to the UNFCC and I met with Seth Osafo, who's some of you may know Yao Osafo. Uh, Seth is Yao's father. And at that point, he was the head 
of the legal department, and and I was talking to him in Ghana. In Ghana, no, no, he was at the uh, at the UNFCC. He was the head of the legal department of the UNFCC at the time. I've never met Seth Osafo, but Yao Osafo is one of the first people I met at my very first conference of the parties to the UNFCCC, or COP, in Bali, Indonesia. I was running around grilling everyone with a negotiator badge. Most wouldn't talk to me, but Kevin did, and so did Yao. He sat me down and explained the process and the state of things, the way his father did to Kevin, and the way I'm trying to do for you. But listen, creating these episodes takes time, and I just don't have as much of it as I'd like. I want to devote more time to the podcast, but that means I have to pay someone to do some of the other things that I do. If you like this show, I encourage you to help me generate more episodes by becoming a patron at bionic-planet.com or at patreon.com forward slash bionicplanet. There you can support me for as little as $1 per episode and with a monthly cap. The addresses again are bionic-planet.com and patreon.com forward slash bionicplanet. I'm trying to remain listener-supported so that I can respond to your needs and not to the demands of advertisers, and I'll begin adding in bonus content for subscribers as well. So I met with him and tried to understand, you know, how, how you put agendas, how you change rules, etc. And uh, um, and a- as a result of all this, we ended up then writing a six-page document that we we put on the agenda of the UNFCC, saying, "Hey, we have a problem in making the case." You know, deforestation at that point was twenty percent of global emissions. And it was intentionally excluded from the regime. How did that make sense? And that became then a an agenda item for the UNFCC after about two years of, of due diligence. How did this thesis get mixed in with the efforts to get avoided deforestation on the agenda? I, I was writing this really sort of as an academic exercise saying, hey, you know, we, we have a market failure here. We, we have a system that's supposed to be accomplishing something, but it's totally failing to be effective if, if it's Im- intentionally emitting such a significant source. So what what's necessary to fix this? So I had to, I had to have the scientific basis, which was Peter Fromhoff and Annie Petsonk and different people. The other was I realized that it wasn't going to be done without a political effort. So the observation was, if the Prime Minister of Papua New Guinea didn't understand this and was upset about this, when, when I actually told him that he could not access the carbon markets because the rules of the UNFCC precluded him from doing so, his first thing was, well, then I want to withdraw from the UNFCC. I naively said, well, why don't you give us a couple years and let's see if you can if we can fix this? And he said, fine. So being in New York, um, I started bumming uh, boardrooms off friends of mine in grad school. So I had a friend who was in the legal department of J.P. Morgan, and he would book a room, and I would invite UN ambassadors, and he would provide a lunch. And if you know UN ambassadors, they'll always show up for a free lunch. And we'd be on the you know 45th floor at the beautiful view, and I would basically just say, guys, you know, I'm just a, you know, an accidental tourist in this space. I'm not a diplomat. I'm not an environmentalist. I'm not a climatologist. But coming from the outside, this doesn't make sense. And it didn't, didn't make sense to our prime minister. Maybe it doesn't make sense to you. And then what do we do about it? And the, we then started putting together a group of countries, which became the Coalition for Rainforest Nations, just by by meeting with ambassadors here, then they would invite their ministers and prime ministers when they'd come back at UN General Assembly, 
I would then use the Columbia Network. So I'd have Joe Stiglitz, uh, who's a Nobel laureate and the former chief economist for the World Bank. And he would agree to meet with ministers and prime ministers and talk to them about climate and forests. And Jeff Sachs was at Columbia. So, so we started putting together this Columbia University Network working with we were ready to attack the UNFCC, as it were. Now, did you select these countries randomly at first and then a pattern emerged? Or how did you decide which countries you were going to reach out to? Well, yeah, the, the, it's, we started with Costa Rica. And as part of my research, it was clear that Costa Rica was one of the only developing countries that had actually turned around their forest loss. And so I was really interested in learning from them, how did you do it? So the minister, Carlos Manuel Rodriguez, who was minister then and has now come back and is now the current minister in Costa Rica again. And I talked to Carlos Manuel Rodriguez as well and should have that interview shortly. If you want it sooner rather than later, I encourage you to help me generate more episodes by becoming a patron at bionic-planet.com or at patreon.com forward slash bionic planet. There you can support me for as little as $1 per episode and with a monthly cap. The addresses again are bionic-planet.com and patreon.com forward slash bionic planet. Picking up with Kevin and his meeting with Carlos Manuel Rodriguez of Costa Rica. He and I had lunch in New York and I said, listen, Papua New Guinea is sort of the sinner here. We're, we're getting put on blacklist for deforestation. And you're sort of the you're sort of the, the the saint where you've turned it around and everybody's looking to you. Why don't we put the sinner and the saint together and let's bring the other countries? You know, I'll bring the sinners and you find the ones who are doing the best and let's let's try to learn together as developing countries and let's put together a proposal that comes from us that comes from developing countries. And we just started uh, expanding that network. Uh, one disconnect was the diplomats here in New York versus the actual people who negotiate in the UNFCC. A lot of times they don't even know each other. So we, we had to get em uh, ambassadors going to UNFCC meetings and meeting their own countrymen and explaining to their own countrymen and saying, now I turn this over to you. So it, was, it wasn't a, a very easy process, but it... Um, it was possible, and we made it happen. And then you were also reaching out to various NGOs. Do you, what did you learn from them? Like, what, what were the, the lessons? I saw them as intermediaries in, in problem solving. So I was really interested in trying to understand, were NGOs actually being helpful, or were they actually in the way? And that was a mixed bag. Um, I'll just give you a, a couple stories. So WWF was very instrumental in keeping tropical forests out of the climate regimes. And for good reason, in the sense that they felt the carbon estimations weren't accurate and there was a chance that forests could be later destroyed. And so there was this what was called a permanence problem. So WWF said, well, if we're not certain, let's kick it out. Now, you know, other NGOs have said, well, if we kick it out, then we're never going to be able to roll up our sleeves and solve the problem. And so there was that fight between the, N the NGOs themselves that I wanted to understand. You know, why, why was one side saying one thing and the other saying the other thing? And, w and were they relevant at all? Did I have to come up with consensus amongst them or could I ignore them? Was, was part of the due diligence I was trying to, to, trying to ascertain. Um, and so, you know, I spent time with 
uh, Environmental Defense, uh, Conservation International, WWF, uh, Greenpeace, uh, the Nature Conservancy, uh, NRDC, uh, you know, talking to a lot of them. And, you know, candidly, w- without being disrespectful at all for all, a lot of the good work that they do, it was clear to me that the, their battle amongst themselves was a distraction. And we needed to get them out of the way if we were going to be able to actually move this agenda in the context, in the context of governments. And that was that was one of the first sort of um, observations. There, there was another interesting story late, uh, sort of after we got it on the agenda. We were trying to create a fund, which is now the Forest Carbon Partnership Facility. So we invited uh, sort of 30 countries together to Columbia University, and we met and we had some experts. We invited the World Bank down to listen. At the end of that, I was looking for a safe harbor. I said, can we get some money together to allow countries to practice doing this without a downside. Um, And the answer was that, let's think about it. So I went to the Nature Conservancy at the time, and I presented this idea. I then got a call from the World Bank later that the Nature Conservancy and the World Bank were going to create a fund, and they wanted the countries to come and advise them. And I was saying, guys, you missed the point. If it's not developing countries seeing this as in their interest in leading it, if it's again the World Bank and NGOs telling developing countries what to do, we're just right back where we were five years ago. Uh, and and we, you know, and the, and we've got to we've got to change the, sort of the the whole paradigm here, disrupt the old model, and think differently. Connecting sort of policy directly to the the countries and the people that have to change behavior. So, so, so that was some of my experience with the with the with the major NGOs um, at that point in time. Ah, okay, yeah, that makes sense. Although I'm trying to remember when we were in in Katowice, I thought you were said that the NGOs helped you build the network too. So they, you know, they they helped you. Yes. Well, let, let, yeah. Let me let me let me. So so that so the first was that if I tried to so the the major takeaway that I was just outlining there was that if I tried to get them to solve the issues amongst themselves, it wasn't going to work. Um, so then the question became, well, who, who, were, who were in there that actually were trying to solve the problem? And environmental defense was clearly one of those. And Annie Petsonk at that time was attending the UNFCC meeting. She doesn't much anymore. But she had a network of developing countries where, where environmental defense was, was doing projects. And she organized a little dinner for me with nine or ten countries and asked me to explain this whole idea, um, and which, which I did. And that was very helpful. That was one of the, one of the very first times where ambassadors and the people who were actually negotiating were together in one place and problem solving together. And environmental defense was absolutely critical in making that happen. And that is what led me to the observation of, of the coalition. You know, could we get one tree more than Brazil? So if Brazil was in the negotiations saying no, could we have a group of countries saying yes and say, but by the way, we have more trees than you do? And it was sort of a naive little concept, but that was the original idea of a coalition was just to have enough countries that would be an alternative to what Brazil was saying at the time. Now, I was a little bit fuzzy on this because Lula was president of Brazil then, Luis Inácio da Silva. 
and he was doing a lot of good stuff on forests. So I called my friend and former Forest Trends colleague, Gus Silva Chavez, who was working with the Environmental Defense Fund at the time. I asked him if he could flesh out Brazil's position back then. I caught him as he was running from that crazy storm that hit Washington, D.C. on the weekend, so it's a bit fuzzy. Brazil at the time was welcoming of the general idea of allowing developing countries to receive compensation for stopping deforestation. And they saw that the proposal at the time, back in 2005, put forth by uh, Brazilian NGOs and U.S.-based NGOs, the the compensator reduction proposal, got away from some of the project-based crediting issues from back in the Kyoto Protocol days. Mm-hmm. So that was a you know national level reductions. So they saw that as a good thing. Now, Brazil was also nervous because they did not want these reductions to come at the expense of fossil fuel reductions. So that's why they were a little skittish on coming out and basically saying, yes, we totally welcome this. They basically said, wait, hold on a second. You know, you wealthy countries have your Kyoto Protocol commitments and you still have not met those because, you know, the compliance period for that was 2008 through 2012. And, you know, there's this interesting proposal, but we want to make sure that these are not, you know, in place of fossil fuel reductions. Right, right. Okay. Which is logical. That makes perfect sense. Yes. What Brazil wanted was to make sure that uh, wealthy countries took on additional deeper cuts in their own commitments mm-hmm. and that the developing countries were not left on the hook to make uh, the reductions. Right. So it was basically, you know, that was that was the, the, the deal that Brazil wanted to make sure that that actually happened at the time. And that's pretty much what your thinking was at the time too, right? Yeah, from the, you know, from the environmental perspective, that's what we wanted because we need, you know, we knew that, you know, the Kyoto Protocol reductions by themselves were not going to be the answer to the problem. Mm-hmm. And we needed more reductions from not only from wealthy countries, but we needed developing countries, in particular China and India, to start taking reductions. And we needed uh, developing countries who had significant um, deforestation emissions like Brazil, like Indonesia, to also start reducing their, their emissions. Mm-hmm. And that was, you know, the I- ideal way to, to come up with, you know, the grand deal is to make sure that wealthy countries took on additional reductions that developing countries with deforestation emissions would start contributing to the, to the, to the solution. And then that way, from the environmental perspective, you would get significant additional reductions. And politically, you would then also have developing countries taking reductions, which would then, in the U.S., from the U.S. perspective, that would be viewed as a positive signal. Brazil had a lot of people that were thinking about this and working on this. We just didn't have great connections with them. And we saw them as, quote, powerless because they'd already lost. The government had already said, thank you for your input. We don't care. And we, uh, so our whole goal was to, was to mobilize enough small countries to create momentum. How did you learn about Substa? How did you come to understand the structures within the UNFCCC? I didn't understand them at all. They, 
they just said there's this meeting that's happening in Bonn, and this is the next meeting of the UNFCC, and and uh, you know they they happen to have a session, and maybe you could raise this issue. So. Um, I wrote a speech and, and, of course, a PowerPoint presentation for Robert Icey, who was Papua New Guinea's UN ambassador, and and he requested uh, a chance to speak in a workshop that the UNFCC was holding at Substa. And so he gave a three-minute speech, and I had a little PowerPoint presentation, and we said, hey, you know, um, we really think you guys did this wrong, and we think it should be changed. Um, and then uh, Robert uh, Ambassador Icy came to me and he said, hey, Brazil came to me and they said, no way in hell. Um, this isn't going to happen. Uh, will you talk to them? So I met a guy called Andre DeLago, uh, who was uh, the head of sort of the, the, the sustainable development unit in the foreign ministry in Brazil. And we sat down and had a coffee and I explained that, you know, what we needed was a system of positive incentives, not telling developing countries what they couldn't do, but creating the right incentive to encourage them to do the, do something that was win-win, that was consistent with their development goals and at the same time was benefiting the world at large. And that if we could reframe it in sort of a win-win and a positive incentive uh, approach, I thought it would fly. And he said, look, that's really interesting. Will you please meet with the rest of my delegation? And so we ended up at a beer hall uh, and spent literally four or five hours just back and forth, me against 13 or 14 Brazilians, <laughs> um, and me just trying to explain why and how this would work, etc. And then the next day, um, there was a closing of the session, and I went to Andre de Lago, and I said, look, after last night, you've got to support this. Of course, I didn't know this process. Uh, you know, you've got to support what, what, you know, Papua New Guinea. So Brazil spoke, and he didn't say anything at all about Papua New Guinea, about red. It wasn't red at that time, you know, forests or, or any of that. And I went up to him afterwards and I said, you know, Andre, after, you know, five hours of me talking to you yesterday, you can't even give me a tip of the hat. And he said, Kevin, you don't understand. This is diplomacy. What's more important is that I didn't say anything. Brazil's position was against and I was silent. Okay. Which means you have a chance. Um, and for me, that was big. That was, uh, I, I learned about diplomacy and I knew that I wasn't dead on arrival. And, and so we went back from Substa and said, look, we've got to get, you know, we've got to get on the agenda. And this was before Red came along. There, there, there'd been these white papers, uh, Steve Schwartzman had one and then others, and, but they, they all had a different name. And then all of a sudden people were calling it Red, R-E-D, that was uh, just reducing emissions from deforestation. This was before they added the degradation and the plus. How, how did RED become RED? They were using avoided deforestation, compensated reductions. And, th and again, those papers came out after uh, we had the discussions with Brazil at, the, at Substa. So after I was able to report back that this whole positive incentive thing was, uh, wasn't getting shot down, you know, out of hand with the Brazilian foreign ministry, um, that, in, that fired up a lot of guys in Brazil <laughs> to say, okay, you know, uh, you know, we've got some air here. And so 
you know, I, I didn't have a good network in Brazil. So I was like, look, you guys do whatever you can do with the Brazilian government. I mean, all I'm trying to do is to, uh, is to not have them block and to make sure I have a bunch of other countries that will say yes. And as long as Brazil is neutral, that's fine with me. So Steve Schwartzman came up with a with a paper sort of, I would say, I don't know, September of 2005 or something like that on a concept. But the, f- from our standpoint, that was sort of a sideshow. Um, and, and it was Brazil focused, uh, and it it had nothing to do with the UNFCC per se and the agenda item that we were putting together, but it, but at the same time, we were gratified to sort of see, to see some movement in Brazil and, and, and that, and Brazil came back, you know, with a rush later, once, once they, once they flicked the switch and decided to play, um, Brazil has shown, has been shown the world how to do it. But at that point they were, they were just saying no. Um, and so we were trying to come up with another name and this is where, where Haldor at the UNFCC was very helpful. We were trying to figure out, well, what do we name this agenda item? You know, we have this paper, which was like six pages or seven pages that explains why, but it has to have a name. And so we were working on reducing emissions, uh, you know, reducing emissions from deforestation. Um, You know, let's focus on, you know, what we're trying to do here in the context of UNFCC. We're focusing on a a significant source and we need to reduce emissions and we need to use positive incentives. And then we were trying to find an acronym. This was at the (laughs) at the Columbia uh, Business School Library. We were sitting there going red and reducing emissions from deforestation red. And at that point, uh, I think the movie had come out with Jack Nicholson and Tom, uh, what is his name, Tom Cruise, where they were saying code red. I was like, no, we can't use red. People come out and say code red. But there was a there was a forest guy called Bernard Schlammerdinger who wanted to do a forest workshop and he wanted us to come and present and he wanted to he wanted to sort of demonstrate that satellite imagery would work and I said look he wanted he was asking us well what what can we call this thing and I said well we're 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 sort of stuck with red and he's like no that's great (laughs) um that's great. Just, you know, give me a title and get the hell over here and present. Um, and so uh, that was the first time we agreed to sort of use that acronym in the context of a technical workshop. And from there, it it, it uh, became red with one D uh, and then it became red with two Ds to add in degradation. And then the plus became conservation and uh, sustainable management forest and enhancement of forest carbon stocks. And so that's the so what, what red plus means today. Okay, okay, so you've got this name, you've got these white papers, you've got Brazil on your side, and now you're on the agenda, right? now. It then became clear that I had to get a game of numbers going. So this is where Papua New Guinea and uh, Sir Michael were incredibly valuable for getting read on the agenda. Um, There were two things that happened. There was the Pacific Islands Forum that was meeting, which was a group of small island states. And I worked with Grand Chief Sir Michael to get this concept of forest and climate supported by by the Pacific Islands. Then what happened was Papua New Guinea is part of the the British Commonwealth, and they're having what's called the Chogum, uh, the Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting. And Grand Chief then worked with Tony Blair and got forest and climate on the Chogum agenda. So now I had 77 countries that were in, are in the Commonwealth, plus those 15 that had all supported this concept of force and climate and that it was time to put it on the agenda. Then I got a call from Canada, which was hosting. 
and uh, Canadians called up and they said, can we please meet? And we were here in New York and they, they, they asked me to go to the Beekman Hotel and they tried to talk me out of it. They said, Kevin, don't put this on the agenda. We don't want to talk about forests. And I was like, why? And they said, well, you know, Canada has some of the largest forests in the world. We're very interested in doing that. But the COP president, who was Stefan Dion, he has a very different agenda. His agenda is to try to start a process for a new agreement. And that process for a new agreement is much more important than which sectors are in or out. So can you please just support our agenda which is built, which actually was the beginning of the process that has led to the Paris Agreement. In, in, with all due respect to Stéphane Dion, he did start that process there. Um, and they said, can you please take it off, uh, take it off the agenda and not even submit? I remember sort of the rug being pulled out from me. I mean, how could I have the, the president of the meeting tell me that they didn't want this agenda on and that they were doing what they could to block us? Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, and, and that's when you went to Samare, right? Yeah. Then I went back to him and I explained that to him. And he said, listen, I don't care about Canadians. I'm, uh, you know, and he asked me to write a letter to Tony Blair, uh, the UK prime minister, and just say, hey, we want to put this on the agenda. And Tony Blair wrote a letter. I still have it somewhere basically saying, look, uh, you know, there are a lot of complexities with forest carbon permanence and estimates, but you're right. We should put this on the agenda. And that gave us the, the, the first encouragement to uh, push back against the, the Canadians. Uh, then you, you get to Montreal. Yep. You've got this support. And so who, who well, were— Well, I didn't. Um, so I, I didn't know anything about the UNFCC. So um, I was coached by the countries themselves. So, you know, I went with like nine or 10 countries and they were telling me, look, when the agenda comes up, you've got to run around and get everyone to push their button because everyone who's supporting, we, we, need, we need that support to come out early and fast. And then it became aware that the U.S. was going to block. The U.S. did not want tropical forests on the agenda and part of the UNFCC. So I, w- I went to them and asked why. And the quote from a guy called Harlan Watson um, who was the head of the U.S. negotiations under George W. Bush. And he said, well, that will be the camel's nose under the tent, he told me. And I had no idea what that meant. And so I was running around going, what does the camel's nose under the tent mean? And it was explained to me, I think, by some of the NGOs, um, that what the U.S. was afraid of was developing countries actually doing something, that the U.S. had had, had this political sort of uh, understanding that as long as China and India and Brazil weren't doing anything, then that was justification the U.S. didn't have to do anything. But if for some reason things turned and those developing countries started to do something, that pulled the, the whole foundation out of the U.S. U.S.'s basis for inaction. And his, his argument was, you know, if a camel smells food under your tent, first the nose comes in and soon he knocks the whole tent over. So he was like, hey, if you give an incentive developing countries doing the right thing, pretty soon they're all going to be in. And and then this whole tent gets knocked over. Uh, And so that then became clear. I had to get as many countries punching their button before the U.S. spoke. So I was running around the floor. You know, this is my first cop. I didn't know anything about what I was doing. Just going into front of every desk saying, hey, push your agenda, support, support, you know, support agenda item six or whatever it was. I was just running around. And it ended up we, we got, I think it was 23 or 24 countries to speak 
uh, before the U.S. finally got a chance to speak. And they were all positive. And then Harlan Watson gets on the mic and all he had to do was to say, look, there's no agreement on this being on the agenda. And we were dead. And instead, he said, well, I don't know. It's hard. And he sort of mumbled a while and then sort of, you know, uh, ended up beating it off. Right. But he had no choice. Right. He, he couldn't have said there's no agreement because everyone had expressed well, agreement. Well, we had enough. All you need, you know, the U.N. is about this consensus. So all you need is one country that says no. So he could have still shot you down, but he would have been very publicly opposing all these developing countries that you gotten together. And he didn't want to do that, I guess, right? Is that Well, I soon found out what their plan was. So he had said no, then he had wimped on the floor, not wimped, but he had given us a, a, a chance on the floor. Immediately after that closed, the U.S. came over to me. It was a guy called Trig Talley at the time. And he said, look, I want to meet with you. And I'm bringing Australia because you're Papua New Guinea. And I'm so it was me and Trig Talley and a, a guy called uh, from Australia. I'm forgetting his name, Robert something or other. And Trig tells me, listen, we don't want this on the agenda. And I'm going to give you two inches of air to breathe. And we'll agree to a work program. And when the work program is done, I'm going to I'm going to basically suffocate you. We're going to we're going to demonstrate that this is impossible, that developing countries don't have the capacity, that the data is not accurate enough. And we're going to kill this thing and you're done. And that was Bali. So two years was Bali. Uh, at that point, I didn't know. And I just said I was elated. I was like, OK, we're alive. I mean, two inches of air is all I need. I mean, you know, let, let's get to work. Um, but. But that was my first experience with the, with, the, with the UNSCC COP. Now, you said this was the beginning of what eventually became the Paris Agreement. Can you tell me, can you kind of flesh that out a bit? And also, you've got to deliver, right? I mean, you've, you've got your two inches of air, but you need a little more than that. What Stéphane Dion has started there was a discussion to say, you know, developing countries should be invited in to do more. And he, he got a two-year work program, uh, and I got a, we got a two-year work program on RED. And the two of them uh, sort of uh, ended in, the, in two years, um, which ended up being the meeting in Bali. And, um, and so in the meantime, what we did is we, we got the UNFCC to agree to a workshop, which was held in Rome. And the whole goal was to demonstrate that, you know, we could come up with accurate data. And in this, in this place, the NGOs played a, a huge role, positively. We brought a lot of experts from a lot of the major NGOs who were, you know, analyzing satellite data and, and highlighting that with satellites, the data was going to get better and better over time. And that the, the, the state of play in 2005 was that the satellites were accurate enough now to actually measure this to a tier one level. So they demonstrated at that workshop in Rome that it was Woods Hole and uh, there were a bunch of different non-governmental organizations that were supportive that, that really turned the tide there by demonstrating that it was feasible and possible. So from that, we then went to Bali and, and um, that was an adventure in and of itself. You were all over that cop like it's it's um, like it seemed like every time i turned around you were popping up someplace yeah well it, it was it was desperation um yeah because you know it was burned in my mind that the agenda item that we had agreed at in montreal had a two-year timeline and if 
if it was not agreed, it was dead. So meaning if if we did not have a step forward in Bali, the, the entire efforts of RED ended there. So so um, I was the probably the person who understood that better than anyone just because I had had the conversations with the U.S. that said we're going to kill it. And the U.S. tried there uh, in Bali. They were serious. Uh, you know, they weren't bluffing. In the context of forests, the U.S. came in and tried to include agriculture. So they tried to, in all the red decisions, include agriculture. And that was dead on arrival because the developing countries were concerned with all the subsidies that the U.S. and Europe gave to their farmers that if now developing countries had the burden of carbon on their agricultural sector without the wealth to provide subsidies, their whole agriculture sector would collapse. So the U.S. knew exactly what they were doing. By trying to insert agriculture in the forest, they knew they were going to kill forests. Um, and so they came in and just went through the entire text and put agriculture after every for- word forest, and the negotiations collapsed. And I-, I was desperate. I called up the prime minister, and I said, look, this is what the U.S. has done. And he said, um, I don't care. Um, you block the U.S., you, you hold up the negotiations, you stop everything, that, that you know, getting developing countries and f- engaged and force on the agenda is much more important than the U.S. trying to, you know, sort of bomb this with, the, with agriculture. And you have my full, you have my full endorsement to, to work with the Indonesians and stretch this thing on until you win. And then he jumped on his plane and flew away and left me there. <laughs> This is how the BBC covered what happened next. I have to say that, uh, you know, the formulation that has been put forward, we cannot accept. Thank you. Thank you, United States. The U.S. was booed as it asked for more commitments from developing countries, provoking this from Papua New Guinea. And there's an old saying, if you're not willing to lead, then get out of the way. And I would ask the United States... We ask for your leadership. We seek your leadership. But if for some reason you are not willing to lead, leave it to the the rest of us. Please get out of the way. And then this total change from the United States. That we will go forward and join consensus in this today. Now, getting back to the interview, I asked Kevin to kind of unpack that week so I could really understand what led up to that famous exchange with Paula Dobryansky. You know how the, the COP works. You have the first week of technical negotiations, and then you have, you know, three days of where ministers are around to try to find solutions. And then, you know, sort of on the Wednesday of the second week, there was no solution, and red, the red decision collapsed. There was no decision. Um, and so I was trying to then find ways to revive it. And I ended up on the beach in Bali having a beer <laughs> with the, the British uh, member of parliament or minister. And I was called back. There was a, a, a big meeting of the group of 77 countries trying to figure out how we could use this concept of positive incentives more broadly for developing countries and trying to make sure that if developing countries were going to act, even if they were, it was based on positive incentives, then we needed to have the finance measured as well. So they were saying, look, if you're going to say you're going to give us money and support 
to develop and, and reduce emissions, and you want to measure our emission reductions, then we also want to measure your finance. So we, we sat in this room, and I took over the computer just because they were having trouble, and we, we fashioned this text, which had an A paragraph that said developing countries will reduce their emissions, and B, that will be based on the financial support, which will also be measured for, uh, you know, provided by rich countries. Now, we went out on the floor that morning, and the U.S. said they'd never seen that text and that they could not accept that text, which was factually incorrect because at 4 a.m. that morning, I, the, we as the group of 77 had finally agreed on this text, and I went and presented it to the ministers, including the U.S. I put it right in front of Scott Connaughton. I sat down and I said, look, this is doable. You'll get developing countries to agree that they're going to reduce and that they'll agree to have those reductions measured as long as you agree to provide finance and you have that finance measured. And I sat down and discussed it with him. And then the next morning he said he'd never seen it. And, and uh, that then uh, caused the, the entire COP to sort of uh, collapse. Okay. Th- this was the big dust up at the end or, or was this Earlier in the week, and this was the last day. This was the this was Friday morning, and the U.S. got on there, got on the floor, and said, "We have seen this, and we can't accept this text." And then I went over to the U.S. I went over to the desk, and I looked at Scott, and I said, "Scott, last night I gave you that text at 4 a.m." And he said, "I don't recall that." Uh, and then Paula Dobransky was sitting there, and I said, "Paula, you were there," and she said, "Yes, I remember. You gave us that text. We have seen it." Um, and then, uh, you know, I, and then they still were blocking. And so I then got really ticked off. And, I, and Scott Connaughton had gone out to the media that day saying, yeah, the U.S. is leading on climate change. We're doing so much on reducing emissions. We're, you know, uh, he'd been in the media talking about U.S. lead on climate. And so then I, I was just pissed off and I was speaking directly to Scott. And I made a little intervention. You know, hey, if you're going to lead, then lead. If you're not, then get out of the way. Um, and and uh, that got the U.S. to stop blocking somehow. Were you expecting them to flip like that? They just no. I I wasn't expecting. I was just pissed. I was exhausted. Uh, they were lying on the floor. <laughs> um, uh, maybe Scott didn't remember. It was four a.m. I mean, okay, let's give him the benefit of the doubt. But Paula did remember. So it, it they apparently called George Bush, and and said, "Look, you know, we're here in this place. We've got this thing." And George Bush called Ban Ki-moon. And Ban Ki-moon basically said, do it. And George called back. And then Connaughton said, I'm not going to do it. So he put Paula on the mic and she said, okay, we'll accept. So there was a lot going on right before I fired. And then they had the answer they needed. And so they were able to respond fairly quickly. But it was a, there was a lot more going on than just me, me uh, firing shots at them. Okay. Yeah, this explains a lot definitely helps me fill in some gaps. Unfortunately, we're running out of time right now, so I might want to fast forward to the present. We've got Red Plus in the Paris Climate Agreement. Now we're talking about climate-smart agriculture. Um, I guess given the way that the U.S. used agriculture in the past, do you think it's something we can tackle, or or do you even have views on that? Yeah, no, I do have views. Um, uh, we, we as a coalition are... Um, are covering agriculture in our greenhouse gas inventory work because our, our basic assumption is we had to do this with force, right? If you know, you can't manage it unless you're measuring it, which is sort of a Peter Drucker thing, right? 
And, and a lot of, there's a lot of fear in lack of knowledge. So we're actually working with countries to say, why don't we understand what's actually going on in agriculture, you know, vis-a-vis carbon, rather than you just saying no, because the fear of, of how it may or may not impact you. And we had to do the same on forests. Once we could actually work with countries and, and help them understand their forest changes, they were, they're, they're always much more willing to work on policies to, to, to engage related to climate. And my sense is agriculture is there with that, with, with that one white elephant, which is sub- agricultural subsidies. So th- that's, the, that's the thing that's really hard to get around. Because we have these agriculture subsidies in Europe and the U.S. and developing countries or most developing countries don't have them. Right. So carbon payments and payments for things like climate smart agriculture, they can become a way for us to pay farmers in developing countries for reducing emissions. Right. So the mechanism that is Red Plus can be expanded then to to include agriculture and, and level things out. Well, may, yeah, may, that's the thinking that has to be done. But the problem is you have, you have farmers in the U.S. and in Europe who also want the carbon income in addition to the subsidies for the, to make them viable, right? And so, you know, it, it would be hard to say, well, you know, you can't have a carbon incentive for, for, for a farmer in Iowa, but you can for a farmer in India um, because they don't have a subsidy. And, and then the farmers in the U.S. will say, well, you know, India should just give their people. So it, you know, we didn't have subsidies in force, and so we were able, and we didn't have sort of, you know, uh, U.S. trade fights about forest products that you do for agriculture products, and so it was, so it was, it was a little bit of an easier runway, but agriculture is solvable, and we, and I have a lot of ideas on how to do that. Do you have time to uh, share some of those views now? Yeah, not, I, I've got a meeting in fifteen, but but I'm but I'm, but I'm happy to do that on a different segment. Okay, maybe, okay, just one final question then is, how optimistic are you that we're going to get this thing reeled in? Yeah, well, you know, that's that's one thing that I didn't talk about that I always talk about, and, and that's something that maybe I should say to you in the following sense, that, you know, you know, why, you know, what have we done? A lot of people are concerned that climate change is just such this this big problem that's so far from their life that, you know, what can they do? And, you know, when, since, since we started this whole red initiative, there are several metrics that I look at. And one is what percentage of the forests are now part of a sustainability metric. And when we started, it was only Costa Rica that sort of had a national plan for its forests, and they were 1.4% of the world's forests. And now we're over 90. Over 90% of the world's tropical forests are part of the red mechanism. So we've gone from 1.4 to 90%. And that's something, right? You know, the other metric is, well, how much carbon climate impact have we had? And, you know, the UNFCC has verified 6.2 gigatons of you know reductions and removals that the red mechanism has already achieved, so we're already at 6.2 gigatons. And then you look at money. When when I was first working with the World Bank, they had just completed a study of how much money had been mobilized for forest conservation, and this was you know 2000 and 2003 probably, and they had done the last decade. So from 1993 to 2003. 
the World Bank came up with 300 million mobilized for forest conservation. If you look at the last 10 years since we've been working, it's now around 11 billion in, in a 10 year period. So when you look at the forests, when you look at the emissions and when, when you look at the capital, a lot has been done. And, and these are things that we need to be encouraged about and, and focus on other sectors where we can make the same kind of impact. Kevin Conrad closing out this episode of Bionic Planet. I should point out we recorded that interview before the IPCC lands report came out and before the recent surge in fires across the Amazon. I may loop back to Kevin once again before our next episode, which features Annie Petsonk of the Environmental Defense Fund, whose name I, for some odd reason, often mispronounce as as Pestonk. You'll hear that in there sometimes. She's one of the people, as you just heard, who helped Kevin understand this crazy terrain. And in our next episode, she tells us how she got into this and offers her perspective on the early history of Red Plus. Until then, I'm Steve Zwick in Chicago. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.